How would you like to get strange? Sasha Sagan's new podcast, Strange Customs, has launched at Only Sky. It is a fun and fascinating dive into the weird and wonderful things that we do every day. Of course, Sasha is the daughter of the late cosmologist Carl Sagan and writer-producer Andrean. Now, imagine being raised your whole life to appreciate the awe and wonder of the cosmos with parents like these. And of course, Sasha Sagan has become a great communicator and author and inspirer in her own right. The podcast has wonderful guests, great insights, plenty of good humor, exploring the power of ritual and customs as part of the human experience. Strange Customs with Sasha Sagan, along with all of the other Only Sky podcasts, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular podcasting apps. Or just head on over to the website, onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. That's onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast. Hosted by Seth Andrews. Have you ever noticed how obsessed the Puritans are with sex? I mean, they're warning about sex, right? Uh, ostensibly, they're warning about sex. They're saying, well, you know, be careful out there. It's a dangerous territory, not just physically, not just about pregnancy and disease, but you are consecrated to your soulmates in the bedroom. And if you go out and experiment, there's that premarital sex, postmarital sex, or if you participate in what they would call freaky sex. No, no. Jesus is in the room, right? Jesus is over there. He's got his folding chair near the bedpost, and, and he's like, oh, hell no. That's not how dad designed this. No, no. No, you can't do that. You know? But uh, when you see the Puritans, and they're often extremely descriptive, <laughs> they talk about, you know, well, this kind of thing's going on and that kind of thing's going on. And I can't help but be really suspicious that they enjoy playing in the playground of physicality and sexual pleasure, but, you know, they know they can't or at least can't publicly do it. So by warning about it, they get to exist in that sphere just a little bit. And the more somebody warns about it, especially non-hetero relationships, the more suspicious I am that they got something going on on the sly. Of course, evangelist Ted Haggard, you know, he's the great example, warning about gay people, gay sex, gay relationships. And when they discover that he's been having this kind of dialogue and I think exchanging photographs with a male member of his congregation resigns in disgrace. I mean, the story is so freaking common. It was uh, Christopher Hitchens 
in his book, Hitch 22, that talked about the hypocrisy of the pulpit pounders that are talking about sex, sexual shame, perversion. Hitch said this. It's a great quote. Whenever I hear some big mouth in Washington or the Christian heartland banging on about the evils of sodomy or whatever, I mentally enter his name in my notebook and contentedly set my watch. Sooner rather than later, he will be discovered down on his weary and well-worn knees in some dreary motel or latrine with an expired visa card, having tried to pay well over the odds to be peed upon by some Apache transvestite. (laughs) I mean, that's vintage Hitch, right? That's vintage Christopher Hitchens. But I, I re- it's almost like the ratings board, the film ratings board. You've got these people who are largely anonymous, and I wrote about this. Uh, they're largely anonymous, and they sit back and they watch, you know, all the nudity and the sex and the breasts and penises and butt cheeks and all the shit, the orgies and you know, whatever. They watch it all. And then they are charged to gatekeep all of that for everyone else by stamping a PG-13 R or NC-17 rating on it. But they've got the best of both worlds. They get a chance to, they watch everything. They watch all of it, every minute of it. And then they're able to look at us in piety and say, aha, yes, I have done this for you. I have made this sacrifice so that you might be protected from degradation. I don't know about you. I'm suspicious that they are very, very, very often getting off on it, sometimes literally. They wave that Puritan banner, we are going to morally gatekeep, but really, they get a chance to sit back in their chair with their popcorn and maybe not even hide their enjoyment as they digest all the stuff that they say or may say is not fit for the rest of us. And beyond the hypocrisy, no matter how many sermons go down, I mean, you know, these people are spinning their wheels. They're spinning their wheels. Anyway, today on the broadcast, with your indulgence and permission, I'm going to play you a chapter from my recent book, It's a look back at my youth and uh, the futility of all of these uh, religious cultures who were trying to desexualize, freshly sexualized young people. Short break, and I'll play the whole thing for you next. Hang on. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 35 minute audiobook chapter from my most recent work, Christianity Made Me Talk Like an Idiot. The chapter, Teens and Designer Jeans, The Blaming and Shaming of Purity Culture. I hope you enjoy it. It was fall football season in the 1980s at Eastwood Baptist High School, and it was a Friday. Students always loved Fridays. Team lockers were decorated for Spirit Week, and jersey numbers and confetti spurred players toward victory on the field. Classes would break at 2 o'clock for an all-school pep rally, which meant less homework and an early start to the weekend. Perhaps most exciting of all, the girls were allowed to wear blue jeans. Blue jeans were forbidden to girls at Eastwood, This was a policy written in the school dress code and strictly enforced by the staff. I remember dozens of occasions in which a female student would either not know the rule, forget the rule, or attempt to subvert the rule and try to sneak from class to class without being noticed. By the way, they were always noticed. Violators weren't simply given a demerit or a stern warning or even extra homework. They were sent straight home to change into more appropriate clothing, even if it meant missing a lunch hour, a lecture, or exam. Parents of students without cars were called, and irritated mothers and fathers were forced to taxi the girls home to their bedroom closets and then back to campus. The parents couldn't really complain because the no-jeans-on-girls policy was one of the better-known and talked-about policies on campus. Girls' blue jeans were too form-fitting. They were too suggestive, too sexy, except on Fridays. From every vantage, the school policy made no sense. Blue jeans were considered so alluring on girls that they required a school-wide ban. But Jeans Day was also gifted to girls as a reward when the school was feeling festive about sports or whatever, meaning that the wearing of jeans was a negative thing unless it was a positive thing. Well, which was it? Were jeans a temptation of the flesh or a celebratory perk. How could blue denim pants be both lustful and virtuous, depending on the day? And why did this strict dress code apply only to females, while the hundreds of male students looked like a damn Levi's commercial? Of course, you're already ahead of me here. We are talking about purity culture. 
Many religious schools have long implemented strict rules in an attempt to keep teenagers from succumbing to their hormones. Good luck with that, by the way. Just for kicks, I googled Christian School Dress Code, and I was met with hundreds of academy websites listing rigid requirements. No hats, no hoods, no visible tattoos, piercings only on girls, only at the bottom of the ears, and nothing flamboyant, no shaved hair designs, no insignias, band names, or political messages. Skirt hemlines may not exceed a dollar bill width above the kneecap while standing. No sweatpants, athletic shorts, pajamas, yoga pants, or leggings. Shirts must completely conceal shoulders, abdomen, back, and cleavage when sitting, standing, or bending over. No sheer materials, nothing with holes, nothing that exposes undergarments. No flip-flops, clogs, or heels higher than one and a half inches. Boots must not come above the knee or draw undue attention to oneself. Most of the pages that I browsed favored the word modesty. To avoid temptation, lust, and thousands of rule-breakers stewing in detention, some of the more regimented Christian schools require school uniforms, with each student wearing the same shirt, slacks, and dresses according to gender. Uniforms simplify things. As homeroom teachers don't have to measure hemlines to kneecaps with rulers. And yes, they frequently do this. And students can't blaspheme Jesus with ungodly heels, long necklines, and slipknot concert t-shirts. Interestingly, much of the modesty message is targeted at girls. This trend can also be seen in the Christian Bible. The scriptures say, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Do not let your adorning be external. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Starting with Eve in the garden and throughout the whole of the Bible, Scripture constantly appoints women as gatekeepers for sexual purity. Sirens with the power to lure their victims with provocative clothing, alluring curves, the bewitching gaze. A woman in Proverbs dressed as a prostitute. Jezebel painted her eyes and adorned her head. The daughters of Zion were haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes. The apocalyptic prophecy of Revelation 17 warns about a blasphemous woman carrying a cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Young girls are taught these scriptures, preconditioned for guilt, internal conflict, and sexual shame and submission. Sure, there are many Bible verses that speak to men, but even those commands often revert to females. When Matthew 5.28 says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, it implies that the female is the object of lust, a magnet that lures a man toward destruction. Also, note that this verse condemns 
thought crime. Jesus knows when something turns you on. For an extreme example of this kind of thinking, we need only to glance toward another Abrahamic religion, fundamentalist Islam, which cloaks its women in burqas and niqabs, full-body coverings that sometimes shield the entire face under a cloth mesh screen. Hardline modesty laws are strictly enforced in Islamist nations like Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, as commanded in the Quran, and tell the believing women to restrain their looks and to guard their privates, and not display their beauty except what is apparent thereof, and to draw their coverings over their breasts and not expose their beauty except to their husbands, their fathers, their husbands' fathers, their sons, their husbands' sons, their brothers, their brothers' sons, their sisters' sons, their women, what their right hands possess, their male attendants who have no sexual desires, or children who are not yet aware of the nakedness of women. And they should not strike their feet to draw attention to their hidden beauty. And repent to God, all of you believers, so that you may succeed. That's out of Quran 24. In both Islamic and Christian purity culture, notice the conspicuous obsession with sexuality and attraction and observe how religious purity laws are so often female-focused. Now, I want to carefully address an aspect of male sexuality that relates to purity culture, making clear that I am not absolving men of responsibility for their words and actions. Having said that, it is a biological reality that men, more than women, are usually genetically coded to respond to visual cues for attraction. In the primate world, as a sexually mature male scans for markers of evolutionary fitness, he lights up at the sight of physicality, virility, youth, and beauty, because a vibrant, healthy female body is more apt to produce healthy offspring. This is true for lower primates, such as chimpanzees and gorillas. This is true for the human primate. Now, for a deeper dive on this subject, I strongly recommend reading the book The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating by evolutionary psychologist David Buss. Given our biological makeup, we can see how males auto-respond to the sight of attractive females. With apologies, I'm speaking here only to heterosexual attraction. But as approximately 94% of the human population is straight, it remains my focus in the context of purity culture. Natural same-sex attractions throughout the animal kingdom are a discussion for another day. Now, the fact that these traits and tendencies exist in the human primate doesn't mean that we haven't evolved the conscious ability to supersede evolved tendencies. In other words, a destructive instinct may still be an instinct, but the human primate can override darker parts of its genetic programming. As Dr. Buss writes, the naturalistic fallacy confuses a scientific description of human behavior with a moral prescription for that behavior. In nature, however, there are diseases, plagues, parasites, infant mortality, 
and a host of other natural events that we try to eliminate or reduce, the fact that they do exist in nature does not imply that they should exist. In this light, the civilized human primate male can experience and acknowledge the evolutionary triggers that draw his eyes toward a beautiful woman while choosing not to entertain and engage in objectification, obsession, or predation. In other words, evolved men should be able to think she's gorgeous without becoming creepy or predatory. Sadly, creepy and predatory remain epidemic adjectives, especially in unenlightened cultures in which men still see women as objects to possess, conquest to boast about, a scapegoat to blame. Human history and the Christian Bible have been saturated with dominant men eager to blame or punish the liberated woman. I'm reminded of the character of Lilith, known in Judaic tradition as the first wife of the biblical Adam. Created from dust like the man, Lilith was Adam's equal. She had a free spirit, was proudly sexual, and her independence ultimately resulted in her exit from the garden to produce demonic offspring. Adam needed a sexually virtuous secondary, not a temptress with a mind and body of her own, and this thinking remains in many religious cultures today. And here's an example. There was an uncomfortably rapey lip-sync video. It was shown at the Latter-day Saints 2013 Sandy Lone Peak State Young Women's Standards Night in Utah. And man, does that event need a nickname. Featuring teenage guys wearing dress shirts and neckties, the video repurposed the One Direction song, You Don't Know You're Beautiful, with a message to schoolgirls about their bodies. The Mormon version is titled, Virtue Makes You Beautiful, and check out these lyrics. The guys sang, Dressing modest, we know it's rough, when the world's making it so tough. Don't need short skirts or low-cut shirts. Being the way that you are is enough. Everyone else doesn't seem to care. Everyone else but you. Baby, you light up the world like nobody else by the way that you speak and respect yourself. Girls with integrity are hard to find these days. You gotta know, oh, oh, you are so beautiful. And check out this line. If only you saw what I can see you'd understand why I need your modesty. Right now I'm talking to you and you must believe you gotta know, oh, oh, virtue is so beautiful. I'm sorry, you'd understand why I need your modesty? That's a terrifying statement if you follow it to its implication. The boys are telling the girls, don't tempt me, honey. Because, you know, I might not be able to control myself. Another creepy phenomenon in Christian circles is the purity ball. Across the United States, evangelical parents force their children to endure chastity rituals, where teens and preteens pledge sexual fidelity. Not directly to a groom, but to their fathers. Many of the children are dressed in actual wedding gowns. 
There's formal entrance and exit music. There are preachers or priests. There is a ring exchange. And there are vows. Here is an actual example of a purity ball pledge. The father says, Dear daughter, this is the day of the purity ball. We are so excited. This ring is made of gold, a precious metal, and shaped into a heart. And it signifies how precious your heart is to God, to us, and to your future husband, who God is preparing for you. The diamond chip is a sign of purity, a reminder that you are committing to purity in heart, soul, mind, and body until marriage. You will be able to give your husband the gift of purity, rare and precious. Then the father slips a band onto the child's left ring finger, and the daughter puts a band on her dad's right ring finger. The rings represent the child's promise to remain a virgin until marriage. Roses are placed. Fathers of all daughters form a circle on a dance floor. Hands are placed on the children, and the fathers all say in unison, We pray a wall of protection around our girls, that they would not give in to a moment that will destroy their lives. Father, guard the feminine, vulnerable, dependent spirits that you created in them. May fathers stand tall and war for the souls of their daughters, and remain faithful to protect these girls for generations to come. Did you hear the loaded language in that pledge? The ceremony focuses on female obedience. The girls are dependent. Female purity is a gift to the husband. And sexual promiscuity or adultery will likely, quote, destroy their lives. Given that girls usually begin puberty around the age of 11, and given that the average age for marriage in the United States is 31, we're looking at two full decades during which sexually mature people will grapple with innate, natural desires that are prohibited to them. Don't spoil the merchandise. Don't break your promise. Keep yourself pure. And again, notice that in this strict biblical model for sexual fidelity, the females are accountable to males. A similar Christian chastity campaign is the popular True Love Waits model. True Love Waits started in the 1990s as a series of virginity pledges, also involving rings, in which teenagers and college students, most often girls, promise abstinence until marriage. The True Love Waits pledge says, Believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, my future mate, and my future children to be sexually abstinent from this day until the day I enter a biblical marriage relationship. Now, a quick note. When the time for marriage does come, Christian tradition includes the ceremonial line, Who gives this woman to be wed? which once again exposes Christianity's model of the subservient female. It's a man who gives away the bride. True love waits is alarming on a number of levels. Its oath is linked to biblical marriage, which is actually terrifying. Have you seen the marriages in the Bible? Yahweh is just fine 
with all of the following scenarios regarding biblical marriage. One man and one woman, Adam and Eve, etc. One man and a wife and the man's concubines. The biblical concubine was essentially an unmarried sex doll. Abraham, Gideon, Jacob, Solomon, and other godly men enjoyed boinking their mistresses. There's one man and his wife and the wife's slaves. Abraham fathered a kid with Sarah's female slave. Ah, come on, you know, the old wife just wouldn't conceive. There's one man and his wife and his other wife and his other wife, etc. Esau, David, Solomon, Belshazzar, and others, they were polygamists. There's one man and his rape victim. In his wisdom and fairness, God required the rapist to pay 50 shekels of silver to the raped woman's dad. There's a man and his kidnapped virgin. Remember that Yahweh allowed his Israelite soldiers to spare female virgins from execution so that they could be kidnapped as wives. Now, how does the God is love crowd rationalize their biblical heroes who were shagging everything but the sheep? Not well, my friends. But apologists have a get-out-of-consistency-free card explaining that biblical times normalized having, say, 700 wives, and that Yahweh was simply using the sexual exploits of Old Testament heroes to accomplish a greater good. Of course, it's no accident that these pathetic excuses were written by men, and Christianity still leans heavily on biblical double standards and chastity teaching showered upon the young— Keep the faith, say the pledge, confess the sin, distrust your nature. Desire is the devil's calling card. Set up for failure, purity-cultured kids are plunged through puberty and into sexual maturity, already feeling ashamed and guilty for normal thoughts and inclinations. Teenagers often betray their purity oaths in the heat of the moment, They become racked with guilt and feelings of failure. And then they either bury their shame in misery or they submit themselves to a religious authority to pay for their carnal crimes. Many of them are shamed by family and friends, guilted into penitence rituals, or dragged before whole congregations to apologize. Some girls and boys prematurely jump into the marriage bed rather than become adulteresses and adulterers, as commanded in the Bible. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. As such, many young people have weddings before they have careers, stable homes, or even a bearing on their own identities, values, goals, and dreams. A bizarre practice in some Christian churches revolves around accountability partners. Perhaps following the sponsor model in Alcoholics Anonymous, teens who are experiencing sexual thoughts and temptations are encouraged to, and I am not kidding, call or visit their accountability partner to confess and ask for prayers, as sexual desire has activated their loins. The prayer is supposed to produce a kind of cold shower effect, 
as God cools the blood, and the now sexually disinterested party can return to not thinking about lusting and thrusting. There is a church in my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that took this tragic scenario to the next level with, and I am still not kidding, masturbation partners, which, by the way, is not what you might think. With masturbation partners, young people in the church tempted to self-pleasure were charged to let another person talk them out of it. What would that conversation even sound like? I'm not saying that devout Christians can't be sincere, good people simply trying to shield their children from perceived harm, especially given the implications of pregnancy, which is a sex education issue, not a sin issue. I am saying that the practice of purity culture is an oxymoron. It seeks to desexualize people even as it remains totally obsessed with sexuality. You simply cannot be free of something that you obsess over. As Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in 1863, try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear, and you will see that the cursed thing will come to mind every minute. The sex sermonizers are kidding themselves. They might as well be telling people not to breathe, eat, or sleep. Interestingly, Christian sex education has been so ineffective that the Bible Belt states of Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Alabama lead the nation in teen pregnancies. Pornhub released its 2017 report congratulating the United States for being its biggest global customer. A 2009 Harvard analysis of credit card data ranked the largely Mormon state of Utah, as the top national consumer for pornography. And porn use is on the rise in southern evangelical hubs. And for those wondering about the efficacy of school dress codes, schoolgirl uniform remains a commonly searched fetish category in the adult porn industry. So what about those girl students at Eastwood Baptist School? They simply shifted from form-fitting blue jeans to form-fitting denim of another color, or they wore tight slacks in a different fabric, defiantly outsmarting the rule makers. Skirts measured the required no more than three inches above the knee, but the dresses still hugged the curvy female form. Girls buttoned up their blouses to the required height, but there was no hiding their innate femininity and beauty. In fact, moral prohibitions actually created a forbidden fruit scenario in which attempts at repression backfired. The more that attractions were discouraged, the stronger they became. I couldn't help but wonder if Eastwood School's moral overlords themselves wrestled with thoughts deemed impure. Were their directives secretly redirected at their own conflicted hearts? How many of them had hidden kinks, a history of backseat trysts, or sexual dysfunction branded onto them by their own parents and cultures? As a Christian teenager, I hadn't taken a formal purity pledge, not in the sense of ceremonies and rings, but I had still promised God to abstain from sexual sins— 
I then propelled out of puberty into a feedback loop of frustrations and failure. My young, supercharged, sexual self ached with desire, often resulting in awkwardness, sometimes in embarrassment, and almost always with guilt and shame. I didn't understand my own body, let alone the female body. I was never properly educated about attraction mechanisms, reproductive systems, organs, or orgasms. Any references to sex education used vague vocabulary pinned to Bible verses. We students didn't learn about our bodies. We learned to be ashamed of them. I remained a virgin until 18. But the preceding years saw me and my girlfriends pushing sexual desires to the very edge of intercourse. And when the heat of the moment waned, I would beg God to forgive me for being so weak and carnal. Forgive me, Lord, for my sin. I promise that I will never do it again. And then days later, I would do it again. This is the tragic shame cycle that results from purity culture, with stories like mine rampant among former evangelicals. Christianity had called them sexually sick. And of course, the church was selling the cure. Sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent. Some people never escape this hamster wheel. Yet there has never been a verse, doctrine, pledge, ring, or article of clothing that has canceled out the sexual side of the human condition. Blame it, shame it, repress it, cover it, prohibit it. Good luck, sex isn't going away. And the religious chastity crowd is harming good people who deserve better than to be desexualized by ignorant Iron Age patriarchs and the defenders of their words. Now, I'm no Alfred Kinsey, but my 50-plus years on this earth, including the time since my exit from religion back in 2008, have produced some perspective. And if I had a time machine, my advice to my freshly activated teenage self would be this. First, ignore the Bible. If you'll pardon the expression, Christianity knows fuck all about sex. The Bible's authors were constantly on the wrong side of everything. Cosmology, geology, meteorology, history, and almost everything else addressed in its truths. Why would anyone think that the biblical take on sex is reliable? Its Old Testament begins with the tragic claim that Eve's sexual desire, and thus the sexual desire of all female descendants, was a curse, the curse for tempting Adam. And in its New Testament, God's salvation plan required non-consensual ghost sex with an unwed teenager. Front to back— From incest to virgin rapes to angel coupling and beyond, the Bible's bed-hopping characters were poster children for ignorance and sexual dysfunction, their stories the mere written words of anonymous, primitive, and patriarchal men. Taking sex advice from Bible authors is like learning modern astrophysics from the scribblings of first-century astrologers. Next, I would encourage my younger self to own it. Sexual desires and attractions are perfectly natural and normal. 
Study the human primate so that you can understand how sexual drive is activated at puberty and impacts you throughout your life. At the very least, recognize that your biology isn't broken. Sexuality exists for a reason, and that reason isn't sin. Whatever you do, don't get sex ed from a church. Seek out actual experts on science and human sexuality. Then, do some solo runs. Regarding the Puritans who shout, Thou shalt not masturbate, I would wager that, ironically, many of those primates are quite likely spanking their own monkey. Self-pleasure is simply pleasure. It's not shredding the moral fabric of humanity. It won't spoil you for relationships. It's not the betrayal of a future spouse or a current one. The majority of males do it, as do the majority of females. Statista's polls reveal that more than 80% of young and middle-aged men self-pleasure, as do about 67% of like-aged women. Despite the urban legends, no, you won't grow hair on your hands. You won't go blind. God is not making an incriminating sex tape of you for Judgment Day. Masturbation feels good. It relaxes you. It can improve sleep. It greatly reduces the likelihood of STDs. It can build confidence as you discover your own body. And perhaps best of all, you can inform conservative evangelicals that your purchase of lubes and sex toys boosts capitalism. Next, have premarital sex. And man, I can hear the righteous berserkers losing their shit over this one. A background of sexual experience doesn't make you an adulterer, nor is it the church's business. Learn to protect yourself emotionally and physically. And as a responsible and liberated person, enjoy what you enjoy. If your eventual spouse isn't your first sexual partner, fine. If you're sexing it up with your fiancé before the nuptials, fine. Beyond that, if you decide that marriage just isn't your thing, congratulations on defining who you are and what you want on your own terms. Live with someone before marrying them. How many people have grappled with and suppressed years of innate desires only to discover too late that they were trapped in a marriage contract with a sexually incompatible partner? Sexual compatibility is critical. It needs to be determined before committing to marriage. And you and your partner deserve better than to fumble through your honeymoon in the darkness of ignorance. Living together allows you to see each other at your best and worst. It exposes any intimacy issues. And if you do decide to have the wedding, you can make that decision without feeling like you are rushing to be together. Beyond that, I've discovered that you don't have to be married to have and be a family. Families come in many forms. You don't need a signed piece of paper to have family. Christians can't invalidate your house because it doesn't look like their own. And again, their marriage model was drawn from the Kidnap the Virgin Girls for Yourselves book. Not exactly a credible source. Just move on and do your thing. 
And finally, have fun with it. By nature, I've never been very adventurous. But I have come to realize how much time and energy I once wasted judging those who are. Kinky used to be a pejorative in my mind. Today, revulsion of kink no longer binds me, if you'll pardon the expression. Prefer the missionary position? Fine. You want to hang from the ceiling in a cat suit? Whatever works. Prefer multiple partners, same-sex partners, a smorgasbord of varied partners? Knock yourself out. If all parties are within the law, do no harm, and give enthusiastic consent, sex is a sandbox in which imagination and play should be encouraged. Beyond the above advice, I think understanding the destructive power of sexual shame is imperative. High-control religions and cults want us to feel accountable to them instead of thinking for ourselves, and they often claim the moral authority of God, guilting us for normal thoughts and natural behaviors. They want to regulate what we think, what we wear, who we desire, and how we express that desire. They don't have the right to do this, and we don't owe them permission— no matter how often they assure us that they are simply acting in the love of Christ for our physical and spiritual well-being. Love needs no religion, and sexual expression needs no clerical stamp of approval. In this light, beginning in youth and throughout our lives, we can embrace the sexual self as not just healthy and wonderful, but also as the defiant rebuke of meddling moralists demanding the keys to our private spaces. We'll have to cover purity culture again in 2023. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful new year, and I'll see you next time. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com.